I'm Eve Lazarus, and you're listening to Cold Case Canada, the murder of Gloria Levina Moody. Cold Case Canada is an independently produced true crime podcast hosted by Eve Lazarus, a reporter and author based in Vancouver, British Columbia. This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Forbidden Vancouver Walking Tours. This episode is based on a story from my book, Cold Case BC, the stories behind the province's most intriguing murders and missing person cases. Vanessa was four years old when her mother, Gloria Levina Moody, was murdered. Her brother Dan was three. Gloria, who everyone called Lee, was from the Balakula Reserve. She was the second oldest of eight children. Lee's relationship with her common-law husband and the father of their children was volatile. He cheated on her and physically abused her when he'd been drinking. Her father, David Moody, encouraged her to get away for a few days and go with her parents and younger brother Dave to William Slake. Her kids would be looked after by their aunts. In 1969, it took more than 12 hours to get to William Slake from Balakula, along 450 kilometres of rough road. The family left on Thursday, October 23, 1969, stayed overnight at Anaheim Lake and arrived in Williams Lake on the Friday afternoon. Williams Lake was buzzing that weekend. It was a pay weekend for many of the workers. The annual fall Williams Lake 4-H show and bull sale was going on, and most of the hotels were filled to capacity. The Moody family checked into a room at the ranch hotel. The following day, Lee and her brother Dave hit the local bars and spent time at the ranch hotel, the Maple Leaf Hotel, and the Lakeview Hotel before ending up back at the ranch, where Lee was last seen at 10pm. No one remembers what time she left or who she was with, and no one saw her get into a car. The next day around 10.30am, Lester Blake, a mechanic with the city of Williams Lake, and his friend Eugene Johnson drove out to a small lake, more of a pond really, not far from where Lester Blake lived on Chilcotin Road, about 11 kilometres outside Williams Lake. When they were driving back along the old cattle trail, they saw a body lying along the road. This is from Lester Blake's testimony at the Inquisition into Lee's death. It's read by Mark Dunn. I can't remember exactly what time it was. Approximately 10.30 or something. I think it was in the morning. We drove in along the cattle trail and we came right straight through and turned around and, and went back. And then I mentioned to Eugene about this lake there, and when we turned around, that's when we saw the body. It was lying on its side with its back to us. It was naked, fully naked. We saw the body lying alongside the road, and we just kept right on going and phoned the police. We never stopped or or did nothing. Eugene had a two-way radio in his truck, and he used that and phoned. Then we drove back out onto the Chilcotin Road and, and waited. Blake said they waited for the RCMP and showed them where the body was. 
Lee had been stripped naked, raped, beaten, and left to die on a cattle trail about a kilometre off the Chilcotin Highway. She was a 26-year-old mother of two. Corporal Ronald Fairhurst from the RCMP detachment in Williams Lake was the first to arrive at the crime scene. He found her body lying face down near a large grove of poplar trees. Her face was severely beaten, her nose broken, and her upper lip almost completely ripped from the jawbone. She had no teeth left in her mouth, and her dentures were found scattered around the crime scene. There were deep scratch marks across her abdomen, left hip, and neck. Dr. Han Chu Lee, who performed the post-mortem, thought the marks were likely made from the zipper on her dress when it was wrenched from her body. Her bloody clothes, the dress, a coat, nylons and underwear were strewn around the crime scene and there was blood on the ground. Long hair strands were stuck to a tree where she'd either fallen against it or had her head smashed into it. Lee had then either crawled or been dragged about 20 metres to the place where she was found. Two thirty calibre cartridges of the types hunters used were found at the scene. According to Lee's death certificate, cause of death was hypovolemic shock from tear of the right uterine arteries, with concussion as a contributing factor. In other words, her vagina and uterus had been ruptured by a metal or wooden object. It would have taken her about half an hour to bleed to death that night, under a full moon. It was cold the next morning and the lake had frozen. Police dog Clear and her handler, Sergeant K.W. Mackay, were brought in to search the trails, the area around the lake, and Chilcotin Road, but nothing else was found. The following day, David Moody had the gruesome task of identifying his daughter at the Caribou Memorial Hospital. There were no defensive wounds found on Lee, nor was any skin found under her fingernails, and nine of the ten fingernails were quite long. This could have been because she was quickly knocked unconscious or because her blood alcohol level was 0.20, indicating that she was in an advanced state of intoxication at the time of her death, about four times the legal limit. Police said that from the brutal nature of the attack and other evidence at the scene, they suspected that a local was responsible. Even so, Lee's daughter Vanessa says at first they treated Lee's brother like a suspect and they threw him in jail. Lee is buried in Balakula and is remembered as a loving person, considerate of others, and who lived for her children. Lee's murder was devastating for her family, and it destroyed her father. Her parents, David and Daisy, took in Vanessa and Dan and raised them along with their own children. Because David had encouraged his daughter to go to Williams Lake, he blamed himself for her death and was haunted by the images of her battered body. For a long time, Vanessa and Dan grew up thinking that their grandparents were their parents and their uncles and aunts, older siblings. Which is why you'll hear Vanessa refer to her grandparents, Daisy and David, as mum and dad. My Mm. grandfather, who I call my dad, he died when I was like seven or eight. They tell the story of how he aged in a matter of four days. He locked himself in my mom's room and he just laid there and he didn't eat, didn't sleep. And the whole town always talked about how his hair went pure white. It was a long, tough journey to watch 
my mom Daisy, she used to go in the basement and she had a piece of my real mom's clothing and she would, all family members talk about her just sitting there in complete darkness praying for my mom to come to her, just to give her a sign. I was 12 years old when I found out that my grandmother was not my mom. Nobody t- nobody said anything to me when we were growing up, other than, gee, you look like your mom. And then, yeah, I remember standing in the kitchen staring at her, and uh, she's like, what are you doing? And I said, everybody says I look like you, and I'm trying to see how I look like you. And that's when she sat me down and told me, and you know, their way of protecting Dan and I. In 1989, 20 years after Lee's murder, RCMP Corporal McIntosh told reporters that six officers were put on the murder investigation and several suspects were interviewed, but there was never enough evidence to make an arrest. The prime suspect died in 1974, he said. Vanessa says the first and only time the family heard from the RCMP was nearly three decades after a mother's murder. Constable John Pilzak of the Major Crime Unit in Williams Lake, accompanied by another investigator from Vancouver, came to see Vanessa and her family in Balakula. They brought along several boxes of files, including crime scene photos from Lee's murder. Pilzak said the RCMP believed that three men from Williams Lake were responsible. All three, he said, had since died, and because they had not been charged, their names could not be released, and the file would never be completely closed. The RCMP officers told Lee's family that one suspect had killed himself in 1972, the second in 1974, and the third in the 1980s. There were no deathbed confessions. In December 1998, the Williams Lake Tribune published two stories about Lee's murder. Reporter Angie Mindis talked to the wife of one of the suspects, who Vanessa was told had worked as a clerical assistant at the Williams Lake RCMP. The woman, who was called Georgia in the article, said that she was married to one of the men suspected of killing Lee. We're all victims of that girl's death, she told Mindis. I have had to live with this for 29 years. Georgia said that she was raising five children in 1969 and her husband was questioned about a week after Lee's murder when police started looking at the locals. Her husband, she said, had served time for rape and armed robbery and beat her up on a regular basis. Outside the house, though, he was popular with the guys and liked to fly planes and race cars. Fearing for her life, she took the children and went into hiding in the early 1970s. Her husband killed himself a short time later after mailing a 12-page suicide note. He was 36 years old. On Forbidden Vancouver's Lost Souls of Gastown walking tour, you'll step inside a world of murder and revenge. There's a retelling of Victorian Gastown's earliest stories with tales of the Great Fire, smallpox outbreaks and the unsolved murder of John Bray. The experience is led by one of Forbidden Vancouver's cast of professional theatre actors who leads you through the city's oldest back streets and alleyways to a dramatic finale in the heart of Gastown. I took this walking tour and it sure sent a shiver down my spine. Book tickets at ForbiddenVancouver.com and save 15% when you use the code COLDCASE. 
Young women and girls have been going missing and turning up murdered for decades all over northern British Columbia. And while the loss of every life is tragic, the names you're likely most familiar with are Nicole Hoare, 25, last seen in Prince George in 2002, and Madison Scott, 20, who disappeared from the outskirts of Vanderhoof in 2011. These women are white and have families with resources and loud voices that capture the attention of the police and the media. When Indigenous women go missing, often the first thing you see in the news is their mugshot, likely taken on the worst day of their life, which makes even young girls look tough and world-weary. The picture will be accompanied by a description that typically starts off with prostitute or high-risk lifestyle or known to police and goes on to frame them as homeless, as addicts, as streetwalkers, rather than the sexually exploited children and young women that they are, as though they are somehow responsible for their own abduction or murder. The 2002 disappearance of Nicole Hoare from Prince George generated a lot of media attention and pressure on the RCMP to throw resources behind investigations into missing and murdered women in northern BC. Public pressure intensified two years later with the release of Stolen Sisters, a human rights response to discrimination and violence against Indigenous women in Canada, a report by Amnesty International that documented the pattern of violence against Indigenous women and girls in the North. Former Vancouver Police Department homicide detective Steve Pranzel joined the Provincial Unsolved Homicide Unit in 2002. Three years later, and following the Stolen Sisters report that generated so much outrage, he was approached by a staff sergeant and asked to look at the case files of three teenagers who were murdered in 1994. The girls were all killed on or near Highway 16, the 724-kilometre stretch of asphalt that's known around the world as a Highway of Tears. The RCMP's Behavioural Science Unit had connected three cases, Ramona Wilson, 16, Roxanne Thyara, 15, and Alicia Germain, also 15, as possible victims of the same serial killer. While these three murders are still unsolved, Pranzel says investigation proved that they were not connected to the same killer. Pranzel and the RCMP's Peter Tufix were charged with forming a special IPANA task force to look for links between other murdered or missing women and girls along Highways 16, 97 and 5. Using data from the Violent Crime Linkage Analysis System, VICLAS, and geographic profiling, 13 murders and 5 missing person cases were selected for further investigation. The cases had to meet at least two criteria. The crime must have occurred near one of the three highways. The victims had to be women or girls engaged what the RCMP determined was high-risk activity, usually hitchhiking or sex work, and the perpetrator had to be a stranger. In the cases that were selected, the ages ranged from 12 to 33. Ten of the 18 were Indigenous. They covered the period from Lee Moody's murder in 1969 through to 2006. When I interviewed Steve Pranzel for my book Cold Case BC, he told me that they had 50 people working on these murders and it was decided to cap the number of missing and murdered at 18 cases so they could really concentrate on the individual investigations. 
The team, he says, spent a year reviewing each case. Once they had reviewed the evidence on each one, hundreds of exhibits were sent to the RCMP lab to search for DNA, fingerprints, hair and fibres, including the rifle shell found at the scene of Lee's 1969 murder. I was curious why Lee's case was chosen as one of the 18 Aparna cases after her family had been told by the RCMP back in the late 1990s that her case was resolved to their satisfaction. Pranzel told me that they looked for cases with the best chance of getting results. When they took a close look at Lee's murder, it quickly became clear that there were suspects, but it was still unsolved. He felt that the original investigation into her murder didn't meet their standards. But in the end, they came to the conclusion that the suspects that were originally identified and long dead were actually their bad guys. Steve Pranzel, and I was a detective with the Vancouver Police Department. For many years, in the last nine or so, I was a civilian employee on contract with the RCMP. We had 18, and then we came up with six solved cases. We felt the the information we could cull from those files might help us if we did, in fact, identify a single serial killer or even a couple of serial killers based on their M.O., but we didn't find that. These were mostly one-offs with a couple of exceptions. How did Gloria Moody's case come up on your radar? Gloria Moody was the first one, so the oldest one that came up in our search. And uh, using that, we assigned a crew to do a review of her file. It became clear that there was some suggestion of a suspect, but I personally learned very early on in my career, and I in uh, Unsolved and in this file, that too many of these files have assumptions. The original investigators say, well, we know these things to be true. So subsequent investors would come in and they would start from that as ground zero. Peter and I and our crew uh, didn't allow that. We said, this is brand new. Go with uh, forensics, go with interviews, go with things that came up from the beginning, but assume that these reports are mistaken or wrong or worse, fabricated in some way, and run it all from the beginning. And so we did that on every file we took, and we found a lot of them had errors or uh, basically they had traveled down roads that we later disproved. I hesitate to say that, but they made assumptions they shouldn't have. And with Gloria Moody, the main suspect, um, came up fairly early on, but it was never put to a point where we could say, we don't have to investigate this anymore. We know what happened. Can you tell me anything about the investigation into Moody's case? We went back into the area and we did more interviews, went over the interviews again. We talked to people that had been interviewed at the beginning just to see if the conclusions they came to way back when still seemed valid. 
And also we look at forensics very hard. Uh, things that were found at the scene where her body was found, uh, cartridge casing and uh, wood and, and branches. We took a real hard look at that, and it, it didn't really give us a lot more, but it confirmed some of the things that had been reported originally. So you still had some of the exhibits from the crime scene? Yes. Just going to ask you if there was DNA. No. Mm-hmm. That was uh, obviously something that would have been very helpful, but some of the exhibit was wood. It hadn't been packaged in ideal circumstances, so moisture played a role, and it had essentially rotted away. So we weren't likely to get anything from that, you know, certainly not fingerprints. Uh, we didn't get DNA or any kind of tool markings, so really wasn't very helpful for us. You mentioned one suspect. The family were told there were three suspects. We came to the conclusion after looking at all the interviews that uh, there was one main suspect, and based on, again, interviews uh, at the time, primary mover behind uh, the murder. Based on what we learned, we came to believe there were two friends of his who were involved to lesser degrees but were probably present uh, when Gloria was killed. She was the main suspect in our CMP officer? No, he wasn't. Blom was the key figure. But there were two other fellows mentioned who were companions of his who discussed the whole incident and were overheard one night in a bar shortly after it happened. So the status of uh, Gloria Moody's file now is, is what? The status is it's concluded all three suspects uh, had all died. By the time we got involved, they were all gone, long gone. So do you think they targeted her, or was it a sort of crime of opportunity? Based on things that we learned, he would target drunk Native Indians in the bars where he hung out. It was frequently Aboriginal uh, First Nations women. And I think that Gloria fit the criteria. By all accounts, she had been drinking fairly heavily and may have even accepted drinks purchased by Blom and or his friends. And I think uh, went out with him in the bad condition she was in. So crime of opportunity, plus she was of a type that he targeted. A few years ago, I was lucky to inherit some beautiful pieces of antique jewellery from my grandmother. But the gold is old and thin, and the rings are out of style. Erin Haken, a Vancouver jewellery designer and goldsmith, has convinced me to take them out of the safety deposit box. Erin will work with me at her Vancouver studio to create a one-off design that I'll be proud to wear every day, and that will honour my nana. Go to erinhaken.com, that's E-R-I-N-H-A-K-I-N.com and receive 15% off your order when you use the code COLDCASE. Vanessa says that prior to 2007, when she was told that her mother's murder would be included as one of Vipana's unsolved cases, there was no support for the families. After that, her family travelled to Prince George to attend informational meetings with the RCMP and met others affected and found some comfort in finally being heard. We have a long history of, you know, as First Nations people with 
RCMP and, you know, a historical fear. And so, and it just kind of sat. And we, we lived through the times where there wasn't any support. And when ePANIC came up, it was just like, finally, finally we get to have our say. And ePANIC came to light due to Nicole Hoare when she went. Mm. And, you know, prior to that, I think Indigenous women weren't that important. Um, Nicole Hoare was, you know, white. And so that whole thing with ePANA was really good for our family to come together and be with those dealing with the same kind of trauma and issues. What's been your relationship with ePANA? Have they actually worked with you and kept you up to date? No. Nothing. 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 Vanessa's grandparents are gone. Her uncle Ron, Lee's older brother, was also murdered, except in his case it was solved. His killer got 18 months. The visit by the RCMP in the late 1990s offered no real answers or closure, and it was a traumatising experience for the family. Vanessa says for her brother, seeing the crime scene photos and hearing the details of his mother's murder was devastating. My kid brother, he, he always introduced himself as he'd say, Hi, my name's Dan Moody, I'm Damaged Goods. Yeah. And he eventually took to drugs and alcohol and he died and, yeah, it got really bad. We looked at his death, a slow suicide. He really tried at times, but it, it just tormented his mind. More recently, Vanessa says she's been harassed online and through phone calls and emails by a man who claims to be a retired RCMP officer. He told her that he was raised in the area, joined the RCMP in 1967, was later involved in the investigation and had information about her mother's murder. When she first started corresponding with him, he told her that he'd been in Williams Lake hunting on the weekend when her mother was murdered and he was at the bar that night with her mother. On Vanessa's Facebook page, there is a poem that she believes was written by Georgia the wife of one of the suspects, who was quoted in the 1998 Williams Lake Tribune interview. It's called The Wings of an Eagle at Balakula, BC, and it's accompanied by a photo of Lee, signed GTB, 1998. One verse reads, I cannot claim a native to be. My eyes are blue, but I can see. Your eyes were emptied of her sight. Your hearts were heavy. I knew your plight. The poem ends, My blue eyes can now close in ease, and on the wings of an eagle soars Lee in peace. Vanessa says a person who claims to be a former RCMP officer creates fake Facebook profiles pretending to be different people who have information about her mother's murder. She feels that she can't report this to the RCMP. She says if he's telling the truth, he was RCMP. What I'll say to you is I've been harassed by an ex-RCMP member and I think this man has something to do with my mom's murder. He's been corresponding with me for the last couple of years and he's an ex-RCMP member, now he's retired. So I get scared. I, he's phoned me, he's emailed me, he's messaged me. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's really scary because um, I honestly think he's responsible for other murders. 
One of the problems is that nobody really knows how many Indigenous women and girls have been murdered or are missing. The best source is the Native Women's Association of Canada, which keeps track as best they can through their website, Safe Passages. I asked Geraldine Trimble, the organisation's social development director, to help me put these numbers into perspective. These numbers are just truly horrifying. You know, you've got over 1,300 murdered or missing Indigenous girls and women across Canada. But what really staggered me, apart from those huge numbers, is that almost a third of the cases come from British Columbia. Yeah, and the thing is, when we talk about numbers, right off the bat, those are numbers that are greatly underestimated. There's no national real database. There's no reliable estimate of numbers of missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls in Canada. Native Women's Association has always been a strong advocate for our murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls, and they'll try to define what is happening today in Canada. It started with a lot of marches and grassroots voices in British Columbia of like how many women were going missing, and it wasn't from systems such as the police system or anywhere in the criminal justice system. It was from community members and family members missing their family members, their women and their girls. This is not something from the past, and these numbers aren't stagnant or standing still. To this day, women, girls, and our men and boys, they're still going missing today. Do you have any theories or thoughts on why it's so high in British Columbia compared to the rest of the country? I believe the ruralness, geography, and this is anecdotal, but these are conversations we've had in groups with Indigenous women, and these are our opinions. We believe with the closing of the residential schools that the perpetrators and those that committed criminal acts against our young people, that with the closing of these systems and losing their jobs and those behaviors aren't going to leave. And I believe they've lost their captive victim audience and now turned outward to places like dark highways where a person is vulnerable like the downtown east side, in places that definitely are not safe. I think there's a play there of why it's so high, definitely. I mean, that's why we have our highway, Highway 16, called the Highway of Tears, right? Because there were so many that happened. I mean, it was quite remote. Even still to this day, there's not full cellular dark. It's lonely. Why are women still hitchhiking? Is that from necessity I believe it's a necessity. There's no greyhound unless a rural area like a town or a an actual gathering of places create their own bus system. Even BC Transit is very limited in the north. So, how successful was it, Ipana? Of the 18 cases, we know the names of two of the killers. Gary Taylor Handlin was convicted of the abduction, rape and murder of 12-year-old Monica Jack in 1978. Although he was a prime suspect at the start of the police investigation, 
It took 40 years to convict him, and it was done through a Mr Big Sting. I go into Monica's case in episode 31, which is also based on a story from my book, Cold Case BC. In 2012, we learned that Bobby Jack Fowler had murdered 16-year-old Colleen Macmillan from Laclahash. Fowler was a transient, drug-using, alcoholic American who had never been on the police radar. He'd worked for Happy's Roofing in Prince George in the 1970s, and he had a string of convictions for sexual assault, kidnapping, and attempted murder in the United States. He'd never been convicted of a crime in Canada, though, and there was no record of his ever being in British Columbia. He died from lung cancer in an Oregon prison six years earlier while serving 16 years for kidnapping, assault, and attempted rape. Fowler's DNA, which had been submitted to the FBI's CODIS, positively identified him as Colleen McMillan's murderer. The RCMP are also convinced that he murdered Gail Ways, a 19-year-old from Clearwater, BC, in October 1973, and Pamela Darlington, also 19 of Kamloops, three weeks later. Besides several similarities in the attacks, all three girls were hitchhiking along BC highways. They were close in age and had similar features. Unfortunately, despite what Pranzel calls similar fact evidence between the three murders, there wasn't enough evidence to conclusively link Fowler to the murders of Ways and Darlington. And just like Gloria, Levine and Moody, Pamela Darlington and Gail Way's murders will likely be filed as resolved and forever remain unsolved. This is Geraldine Trimble from the Native Women's Association of Canada. I'm working on Gloria Moody's murder in 1969, Williams Lake, and she's the oldest. From, yeah, known from Bella Coola. Right. Yeah. Now, the RCMP say it's resolved. Um, it will never be closed because the murderers were apparently killed. But I'm um, just overall with the Apana cases, what do you think? Did they do a good job? No. Yeah. Unfortunately, even to this day, you will have different women who have gone missing and who have died and found in a horrific state. And the police, I don't get it. I don't have the answers for it. But why do they say that they're resolved and no longer going to investigate or that they're unsuspicious deaths. Now, that is one where I think many of us in communities, when that gets announced that it's an unsuspicious death, that it just creates an uproar in our communities. And definitely, we do feel unheard. We feel as though that we're not cared for and that We as human beings are less than. I want to leave this with a few words from Vanessa. (sighs) There's no justice. There will never be justice. Even if the truth came out, justice will never be served here on earth because we had to live with this like we lived in jail ourselves. I still believe there's a sense of, uh, as far as being an Indigenous woman, that we're not looked at as, as humans, there's still a sense of intense fear. If you're enjoying Cold Case Canada, why not buy Eve a coffee? Go to evelazarus.com. Thanks so much for listening. The murder of Gloria Levina Moody 
is based on a chapter in my book, Cold Case BC, the story behind the province's most intriguing murder and missing persons cases. I want to thank Lee's daughter Vanessa for trusting me to tell her story. If you would like more information on this or other cases, please go to my website, evelazarus.com, or join us on the Facebook group page, Cold Case Canada. Hi, I'm Christine, and I'd like to introduce you to the True Crime Files podcast, a bi-weekly podcast that focuses on mysterious disappearances and unsolved murders. Every two weeks, we'll be releasing an episode that'll help you get to know a case really well without having to invest a lot of your time. Derived from the articles upon the True Crime Files website, you'll find that our show covers a diversity of victims and perspectives. You'll probably also notice that our episodes are narrated by Scott Fuller from the Frozen Truth and Status Pending Podcasts. Be sure to subscribe to the True Crime Files today so that you never miss an episode. Thanks so much for listening, being a part of our true crime community, and helping to shine a light on cases that might otherwise be overlooked or underreported.